Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to this week's episode of Shankman on Money. This is episode number 18. In Judaism, there's a lot of significance placed on the number 18 since the numerical value of the Hebrew word life or chai is also 18. This is why it is customary to give gifts in the multiples of 18. It is a way to say to that the gift should be good luck and be used in a positive way. Hopefully this podcast has inspired you in some positive way. If it has, please be sure to rate the podcast to help other personal finance enthusiasts find the show. This week, we have another exciting episode. My talking points are going to focus on taking a proactive approach to affording a Jewish lifestyle. For those folks who are not Jewish who are listening, some of the same thoughts, ideas, and strategies can be applied with working with other demographics who have an expensive lifestyle. This may include folks who live in close proximity to a high cost of living city, send their kids to private schools, and so forth. Sure, there are some differences when planning for every demographic, but there should still be a helpful nugget or two to take away for your own life from this episode. As always, I'll spend the last half of the episode answering listener questions. I will also share an interesting quote that keeps the joys of financial success in perspective. With that, let's jump into this week's talking points. So it's no secret that the cost of a from lifestyle can be prohibitively expensive. Affording food, housing, and yeshiva education are just a few of the major financial outlays that families face. I call the elevated prices for these areas to be Jewish inflation, since the prices may be far greater than are typical for these products in other communities. For instance, strong demand for items such as kosher food and housing within walking distance to a synagogue cause prices to be elevated. Many rabbis and other leaders have put forward suggestions on how to make an orthodox lifestyle more affordable by addressing some of the systematic issues we all face. For example, to bring down the cost of yeshiva education, some leaders have suggested relying more on technology, volunteering of parents, and financial support from the local Jewish community. There are no easy answers or universally popular solutions. While there is so much to be discussed on these systematic issues, I prefer to take a different approach. As a financial advisor, my focus is to suggest practical strategies that from families can implement within their own finances to help alleviate financial stress. None of these strategies are easy, but they may all be effective when taken seriously. Over the course of the next couple of episodes, I'll highlight a few different strategies. I'll start by discussing the importance of minimizing discretionary expenses and the benefits of relocating in this episode. Let's discuss expenses first. There are two different types of expenses, non-discretionary and discretionary. Non-discretionary expenses are mandatory. This includes utilities, rent, mortgage payments, taxes, and grocery bills, to name just a few. Discretionary expenses, on the other hand, are not mandatory and can be avoided or minimized with proper planning. One example is where we decide to get our food. Everybody needs to, to eat. But going out to eat is a luxury, and that shouldn't be indulged in if you are having problems paying your housing costs or tuition payments. 
If you purchase prepared food, prepared food for Shabbos, the financial outlay is a multiple of what it would cost to prepare the same meal by cooking it at home. The same can be said about eating out breakfast, lunch, and dinner instead of eating at home or ground bagging your lunch when you're at work. Another non-discretionary expense is to minimize your choice of automobile. Remember, the point of a car is to get a person from point A to point B. It is not to have the latest model luxury vehicle or to impress your friends. A used car leasing a basic model may be all that is necessary to address your transportation needs. Furthermore, it is rarely necessary for a family to have more than two cars. Granted, this may make coordinating car usage a requirement in a family with multiple adult children, but the financial outlay for another vehicle, the upkeep associated with it and the insurance is an unnecessary expense for most families. Traveling for vacation is also a discretionary expense. While it's important to take time off for mental health reasons, it is not vital to travel to Miami for yeshiva break or to Israel for Pesach. The amount of money a family can save by having a staycation instead of traveling is significant. A final illustration is related to housing. It's interesting to note that the average house in America in the 1950s was just 983 square feet. By the 1980s, it was 1,740 square feet. Today, it's approximately 2,700 square feet. A larger house means more upkeep costs and higher taxes. It also probably means you took out a larger mortgage to be able to purchase the home. While it's important for a family to live comfortably, it's also important to note that housing is one of the most significant costs in the budget for any family. Be honest with yourself about how much space you actually need and what you can afford. The ability to live in a house that is appropriate for your needs and income can make a huge difference in your monthly cash flow. If you comb through your budget, you will quickly see there are many discretionary items similar to the ones I've mentioned that can be eliminated. Do you pay for multiple video streaming services, a gym membership you never used, or magazine and online subscriptions you never read? Each one of these items may not seem like a lot. However, when you tally all these expenses together on an annual basis, you may be looking at many thousands of dollars a year in savings. These savings will help free up dollars to spend on necessities like food and yeshiva tuition. Next, let's discuss the strategy of relocating and how it also help you can help you afford a from lifestyle. So proper financial planning involves many important decisions. Some are seemingly small choices that compound into big results. This includes minimizing non-discretionary expenses, like I just mentioned, saving regularly and investing prudently over a long period of time. Other planning decisions may be life-altering. One such decision, which can be immensely beneficial to your wallet, is relocating. Relocating is not a topic frequently discussed by personal finance gurus. It's tough to uproot and leave family, friends, and community to which you've grown accustomed. In other words, it's quite an unpopular suggestion. However, some of the largest expenses for families are those associated with where they choose to live. If you really want to lower your expenses, there are a few life decisions more impactful than moving to a community with a cheaper cost of living. Housing is the obvious example of potential cost savings for moving. I'm always astounded when friends and clients in other parts of the country tell me how much they spend to purchase a new home. In some Midwest communities, a family can buy a large home on a substantial piece of land for what it costs to purchase a knockdown house on a small lot in some parts of Long Island 
Westchester or Northern New Jersey. You can't even buy a tiny studio apartment for the same price as a mansion in the Midwest. It's important to note that you do not need to be a pioneer to move outside the New York, New Jersey, Miami, Chicago, or Los Angeles areas. As a passionate road tripper who has explored around the country, I can attest to the fact that there are thriving communities all over the United States with well-established Jewish infrastructure and even multiple kosher restaurants. Aside from purchase price, another important housing-related benefit of moving outside a large city is the possibility of lower property taxes. The level of ongoing property taxes can be quite onerous in some parts of the country. It's not uncommon to pay $20,000, $30,000, or $40,000 a year in property taxes in some New York metropolitan towns. This is akin to putting a child through yeshiva every year, except that a child will eventually graduate and get a job, whereas taxes never end and keep rising. On the subject of yeshiva costs, a recent article in the New York Post discussed the leading Jewish high schools in New York. What jumped out immediately was the price tag. Tuition costs ranged from $23,000 over, to over $50,000 a year. Granted, there are plenty of other Jewish schools in the area that cost less, but these numbers may seem alarmingly high. From families living outside the New York area may have options that are significantly more cost-effective, and in some states, there may even be access to a government voucher system that allots funds that help offset the cost of tuition. Relocation is not only for young families looking to buy a home and send their kids to yeshiva for an affordable price. It's also worth considering for folks approaching retirement. Leaving the workforce means giving up a steady paycheck and living on a fixed cash flow from Social Security and your nest egg for potentially a multi-decade time horizon. This may present a challenge when one has high reoccurring expenses. Retirees may benefit from geographic arbitrage. With this strategy, a person spends their working years in a city where salaries are relatively elevated and then retires to a place with a much lower cost of living. This may help their nest egg last longer. The decision to move is certainly easier for people whose kids or other family members have already moved to one of these lower cost of living areas. Admittedly, it will be a more difficult choice if your family is all concentrated in the high cost of living area. However, before staying put for retirement, it's important to run the numbers to ensure you can maintain your lifestyle without a paycheck. A final point worth addressing is the fact that some Jews dream of making Aliyah or moving to Israel in retirement. Many factors go into that decision, some of which should be discussed in depth with your financial and tax advisors. One financial benefit of moving to Israel is its socialized medicine. Healthcare costs tend to rise as we age. Long-term care, which refers to a variety of services designed to address a person's health or personal care needs that arise due to cognitive and physical decline, has become a more common reality as people live longer. In the U.S., extensive planning must be done to prepare for these financially burdensome costs. Israel's system makes the costs more manageable for retirees. While every healthcare system presents its own unique set of challenges, they may also present certain advantages that retirees should take the time to explore. The stress of moving cannot be ignored. However, the lifestyle and financial benefits of relocation may make it worthwhile. Deciding to proactively plant your roots in another location may lower your expenses and make affording a from lifestyle more manageable. Okay, those are the talking points for this week. It was a little bit longer than usual. 
Um, as a reminder, you can be notified of all my recent articles, webinars, and all the work I put out by subscribing to my free monthly newsletter at shankmanwealth.com forward slash newsletter. Now for this week's quote, which is from Mike Ditka, who was a legendary football player, coach, and television commentator. So you could get your, your financial quotes from anywhere. Um, he is a, also a member of the Football Hall of Fame and both as a coach and a player. Mike said, success isn't measured by money or power or social rank. Success is measured by your discipline and inner peace. We all know folks who have tremendous material wealth and respect from others, but they're completely miserable. Money can buy a lot of things, but it sure can't buy happiness or personal satisfaction. That has to come from within. It's important for everyone to understand that money can do what money can do and what it can't do for us. This reality is something that all people should keep in mind as they go through the motions of making money and developing a level of success in their careers. Now let's jump into this week's financial questions. If you do have a question, feel free to submit it to me at jonathan at shankmanwealth.com and it may be answered in a future episode. Okay, first question. What is the ideal net worth? So the answer is that there's no such thing as an ideal net worth. Just like there's no such thing as an ideal car, house, synagogue, political party, or pastry, everyone has their own needs, desires, and preferences. I have clients who lived for decades in retirement on a relatively modest amount of money and others who have a tremendous amount of money and will blow through it all unless they change their ways. The amount of money that is necessary to maintain your lifestyle is also very dependent on where you live. For example, if you want to move to Thailand in retirement, your dollars will get you a lot further than if you plan to move to Kuwait. Two very practical options for many people are listening, I'm sure. Um, Kuwait has a very strong currency. The only time you'll need to have a certain net worth is if you are at an elite kiddish club in certain places in North Jersey and Long Island where they let you in or don't let you in unless you have a certain threshold of wealth. I'm joking on this last point, but not really. I know that you will dissuade me, but I firmly believe we are entering the dark ages, which I invest in given my thesis. Before I answer your question directly, let's start with this. You're wrong. The world just keeps evolving and getting better no matter what the Debbie Downers like you want to believe. Now to answer your question. In order to be successful in any type of investing, you need to be an optimist. If you don't believe in progress and innovation, actually believe we are going downwards, then no investment will work out based on your thesis. If you actually believe your dark ages theory, then you should liquidate all your investments, buy canned goods, a water filtration device, ammunition, and then move to a cave in the Midwest. That's the strategy for you. It's the best way to ensure your survival and not getting wiped out. Perhaps you should also bring another family to mate with to ensure the continuation of the human race if that's of interest to you. Lastly, I recommend doing more exercise. If we all know we all know that exercise gives you endorphins, endorphins make you happy, and happy people just don't have such a negative view on civilization or the stock market. You can use more positive outlook on life. There are an article, there's an article a few weeks ago that I read about the best time to liquidate your I-bond position since in, inflation is under control. Any thoughts on this subject? The best way to look at this question is, as always, to determine what your goals are. Sure, people will get zoned in on determining the best time to liquidate a few thousand dollar position in I-bonds, but that's the equivalent of making your coffee at home to save a few dollars. It just doesn't matter. What is the purpose of your investments? Do you want it to grow? Then invest in the stock market. Do you, do you need it in a few years? 
then buy bonds and align the duration of your bond portfolio to when you need the money. Do you need the money in the near term? Then buy a money market fund and move on with life. This may be un an unpopular opinion, but it's the truth. And I've said it for years since the I-bonds have been, have been the fad. I-bonds are overrated for most Americans. Unless you have a very, very, very modest net worth, then putting a few thousand dollars in I-bonds is not going to move the needle. Focus on the $100,000 decisions and not the $100 decisions. That's the truth with money and life. Next question. I have a deep value tilt in my equity portion of my portfolio. It has underperformed the market meaningfully. Is it time to rethink my allocation to move out of value? It was probably time to rethink that strategy 15 years ago before growth stocks started their historic rally, but no one can know what the future holds, so I don't actually fault you for this. Many people have a value tilt in their portfolio, especially folks that are proponents of indexing, and in particular, Fama French factor-based investing, which basically includes every academic podcast host, podcast host or financial blogger. There's nothing wrong with having a value tilt in your portfolio. If you pull up holdings of a value index fund, many of them are high quality companies that have been around for decades and, and will continue to be around in the future, in most likelihood. Will they outperform the next decade? I don't know. No one knows. Markets are cyclical. So since they've underperformed over the past decade and a half, that is reasonable logic to assume that they may outperform in the future. Everything moves in cycles. Personally, I would position most of your portfolio to be neutral on value versus growth. If you want to add a stickle value for a slight overweight, then call a Kavod. No harm in doing that. Next question. Sort of a money question. I'm halfway through medical school and I don't want to be a doctor. That's not a good situation. Like, I really don't want to be a doctor. I just want to make money and thought medicine was my best pathway to do that, but I'm not interested in medicine. I have tons of loans. What do I do to pay off all my loans and make a tremendous amount of money without needing to finish medical school? So you're in a tough spot and I'm sorry to hear it. The key here is finding a lucrative career path that you can stick with and that will allow you to dig yourself out of this hole. The best option if possible is to actually finish medical school. You don't need to be a doctor, but you can always leverage your medical degree to do other things. Dropping out in the medical, middle of medical school is a much worse decision. Additionally, you may want to invest a bit more money to speak with a sophisticated headhunter, recruiter, career advisor to figure out how to position yourself for another high paying career. This is not my area of expertise, but here are just a few thoughts. One, jobs. Analysts at a hedge fund, investment bank, private equity firm, focusing on the sciences or a consultant, a management consultant. You don't need advanced degrees for these roles or to take, or, and you also don't need to take out more debt. And they, pay, and they pay a lot of money if you can get the gig. Two, your sales pitch. You can say that you love the sciences and you have a great analytical skills but decided you didn't want to be a doctor, explain how you were really passionate about finance or consulting, and you pay homage to the New York Stock Exchange every year and worship at the feet of St. Warren Buffett. Not sure what the equivalent of her consulting is to show your um, dedication to the field. Maybe just say you enjoy flying business class and traveling 10 months out of the year. Number three, do your homework. You got to find a way to educate yourself about these areas and make it sound convincing. And four, interviewing is acting. Give a convincing performance. Again, this will require research, but also work on your delivery. 
You need an Oscar-worthy performance to convince these financiers and consultants that you have what it takes so you can collect a six-figure starting salary and dig yourself out of this mess. To be frank, if you drop out of medical school, your odds are slim, but slim odds have never deterred the best. Be a boss, get after it, make it happen, and I wish you much hatzlacha with that. Okay, and that's it for financial question this week. Feel free to email me with any questions you have, and I might answer them in a future episode. And with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any question, comments, or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's to spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Shankman on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.